Hi, everyone. A quick heads up before we roll into today's episode, just to let you know that this episode talks about violence, rape, sex trafficking, child pornography, and racism. Please listen with care. Thanks. Welcome to This is Probably a Really Weird Question, the podcast where a medical doctor and a doctor of history talk about sex, history, and the not at all weird questions we hear from patients, students, and colleagues about our bodies and our sexualities. I'm Dr. Ronnie Hyone. And I'm Professor Rebecca Davis. And today's question is, is porn bad for my health? Right. So we're two giant nerds who are mostly familiar with Deep Throat as the undercover name of the government informant who tipped off the Washington Post reporters who broke the Watergate scandal. Okay. It's very very on brand for us, Rebecca. (laughs) We are back. We are here for season three. (laughs) Season three. Season three. I had kind of a nice hibernation time. How about you? Uh... I don't remember, which makes me think that it was. No, I'll tell you what I did. (laughs) I did a couple things. I finished the book. Yay! Yay! Uh, And turned it in to the publisher, finished out my semester, and then went into a sort of trance-like state for (laughs) several weeks. Did you have Um, a dissociative fugue? (laughs) I think I had an extended dissociative fugue. And I did some stuff around the house. I hung out a little bit more with my kids. Generally felt aimless and lost. That Made me think, is this what it's going to be like when I send a kid out into the world? It's like this thing you've worked on so intensively for so long and, and then it's out of your grasp. Like it's gone. It's out in the world. I hope everyone's nice to it. <laughs> I know. I hope nobody makes fun of it. I hope they like it. I yeah. hope that it's like what people were expecting and... Uh, yeah, like total anxiety about it. But now I'm working through copy edits and generally, yeah. So huge accomplishment. You know, it is. (laughs) It is. Can give yourself a little pat on the back. Thank you very much. Um, But yeah, I'm I'm recently told my family that I was thinking of a new book and they all looked at me with absolute dread and And disappointment. (laughs) So apparently I'm super fun to live with when I'm finishing a book. Maybe just put a pin in that one, you know? (laughs) <laughs> Save it for later. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. I'm so excited that we're starting season three. I am too. And I was looking back over some of the questions that we've talked about in prior episodes. And I'm super excited for what we're going to be doing in season three. Yeah. You know, I this particular episode made me laugh because um, I'm trying to be better about like actually writing things down on to-do lists and getting things done. And on my really weird question to do list. It says research porn, (laughs) which, you know, I don't think has ever been on my to-do list before. In fact, I'm going to cross it off right now. Yeah. I think it also sort of has two meanings, like, um, because people talk about food porn, right? You know, those sort of glossy images of prepared, you know, foods. So research porn could be like the stuff that makes researchers really excited. Like instead of the verb, it is the noun. It is the noun. So it would be like the card, the old card catalog system. So the library where I went to college there had this whole entryway full of card catalogs. They're all gone now, except for one that stands there as sort of a memorial to the pre-digital age. But seeing those, that for me, that's like research porn. Uh, Do you know that I own a card catalog? Mm-hmm. That's awesome. Yeah. This is why we're friends. I almost bought one <laughs> like many, many years ago and I didn't buy it and I regretted it for years. And I was like, you know what? I don't care where I am in my life, where I'm living. The next time I see a card catalog up for sale, I'm fucking buying it. And I did. And you know what? I love it. It is in our living room and we store all sorts of fun stuff in it. It was a beast to move. Like, even with all of the drawers out, it was one of the heaviest things I've, we've ever had to move. And it is a thing of beauty. So not to disclose too much, um, but I now, if we are talking about this as research porn, my brain wants to know, have you labeled the drawers? Are they alphabetical? 
excellent question. The answer is, it's going to break your heart a little bit. So when I bought it, it had all of the little labels and those really thin, like, uh, transparent acetate things that went over the labels. And we took them all out so that they didn't, you know, get lost. And now they are gone. They are gone. (laughs) But I have dreams. I have dreams of taking up, you know, hand lettering and putting in new labels in there. The other thing is they still have the little, the little rod that goes down the middle where the cards were attached. So it's a little bit tricky. Things don't always fit in there the way you want them to. Yeah, that's hot. Right? That's, that's hot. Such nerds. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But this is not, this in fact is not the erotic content that people who are worried about a public health crisis are worried about. You and me obsessing over the lettering of a card catalog drawer is in fact fairly niche um, in the world of kink. So (laughs) it's rather niche. But, you know, this is one of these questions that is both like totally relevant to what you do as a physician and also something I actually came across multiple, multiple times in researching my book. Wow. Yeah. People have been really worried about the health effects of pornography for decades. Huh. And the answer is, the answer, the consensus response is that nobody knows. <laughs> um, but people have very strong opinions. <laughs> that pretty much sums up the medical history, too. So, I mean, I think maybe we could just end the episode here. Eh, nobody knows. <laughs> eh. Your guess is as uh, good as mine. So, maybe don't do it too much. Right? And I think of it as, like, such an interesting corollary to things about, you know, should we all wear seatbelts? What are the effects of tobacco or nicotine on our health? All these different causes that we've taken up over the years to figure out how to change behaviors. But pornography, because of all the value judgments people have about it, is Mm -hmm. sort of different. Yeah, people definitely bring a lot of their own baggage to it. And certainly, you know, people will make jokes about stuff like this all the time. Like, how much sex is too much or how much masturbating is too much? And then the answer is like, well, if you're doing it more than I am, it's too much, right? But (laughs) (laughs) it's not really a terribly helpful medical approach. No. The thing about porn and health is it has come up in ways for me that I think were predictable in some ways, right? Like couples who have discordance around consumption of porn. Like I often would talk to somebody whose spouse is watching a lot of porn and they're wondering if that's okay, or they're, they're having feelings about the fact that their partner is using porn. And sometimes it comes up around like the adolescent well visit. And I'm really excited to talk about that particular issue um, more in an upcoming episode. Stay tuned listeners. Stay tuned. It's a teaser. (laughs) And something else that came up is You know, during the pandemic, I had a lot of patients start doing Mm -hmm. like cam work, sex work, and it has been amazing for them, right? Like they are making good money. They're able to save some money. Mm -hmm. Someone was able to buy a house because of the amount of um, income that they were getting from their cam work. And it has really, um, I think my own responses to pornography have really changed during my life, right? Like, I think in my earlier Mm -hmm. years, I was very, like, scandalized and kind of hardcore. Like, there's no, there is no way for pornography to be feminist. There's just no way because it's all made for the male gaze, blah, blah, blah. And then kind of, I think in general, as we get older, we're kind of like, I maybe don't need to be so strident about everything. And so then I went to this other phase of my life where I was like, absolutely, all pornography is great. And now I'm kind of like, you know, I think much of pornography is good. Um, And that in moderation, it can be used safely and healthfully. Right. Yeah. So you were talking about camming or things like OnlyFans and other sites where people can live stream or have the sort of one-on-one video chats with people where they're sort of engaging in sexual conversation, sex acts, you know, insinuated or simulated or real And yeah, it's a huge industry. And one of the benefits of it that I've read about is people saying that it's so much safer for them. It's a form of sex work where they're 
location is not available to the people who are their customers. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, So they feel physically much safer. And they can also do it on their own schedules in certain ways. So it's a form of flex work that if people are working multiple jobs or going to school and trying to sort of make ends meet financially, that it's a interesting form of gig work, basically. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So one of the things I find so interesting in the history of all this is the question is, you know, is pornography harmful? Immediately, I think, well, harmful to whom? And very often, it's women and children or adolescents who are portrayed as Mm -hmm. the quote-unquote victims of pornography. Mm -hmm. So just to like give a super quick, you know, timeline of this, people in the 1800s, even the early 1900s, would have talked about what they would call obscenity or vice or indecent content mm-hmm. as immoral, right? As sinful. And it's really as we push more into the 20th century that you start to see a discussion about obscenity or pornography as medically harmful or sort of psychologically disruptive. Mm. Um, but it's only in the 1960s that it's first really addressed as a public health issue. Mm. So it's in the 60s, you know, American culture is sort of opening up. You've got the counterculture. You've got the beginnings of, of sexual liberation. So the films people could go see, books, so on. There are a whole bunch of important Supreme Court cases making it easier for people to get their hands on books or images or to go to adult bookstores that often in the back had little booths where you could watch pornographic films. They're usually real short. So Congress authorizes President Lyndon Johnson to form a commission on the effects of pornography. And he does. And they, it's, a com- it's physicians and sociologists, psychologists, religious leaders. Mm-hmm. And three years later, they issue their report and they say, no, it is not harmful. And, you know, they don't find any cause and effect between wow. consumption of pornography and the effects it has on people. But a whole lot else then happens over the next 15 to 20 years, such that by 1986, Edwin Meese, who was the attorney general under Ronald Reagan, President Ronald Reagan, he has a new commission on the effects of pornography. And this time, it's aligned with a women's organization called Women Against Pornography. And they just bring in one witness after another talking about the harmful consequences of pornography in their lives. And almost all of these witnesses are women. And so Women Against Pornography started in 1979 as sort of a feminist organization among feminists who, much as you were saying about your earlier views, saw all pornography as anti-feminist. Robin Morgan, who was a radical feminist, said, you know, pornography is the theory, rape is the practice. And so for these radical feminists, pornography could never be good, right? It was always going to be a form of violence against women. Mm -hmm. There were other feminists who said, wait, wait, wait a second. I didn't have, you know, liberation so that other women could tell me what my kinks are, you know, so that other women could tell me, you know, how I want to enjoy my sexuality. And so that group begins to call itself like the pro-sex feminists. And then there are the anti-porn feminists. And we historians now refer to this as the feminist sex wars of the you know 1980s and thereafter. Um, so Women Against Pornography, though, starts really as this feminist organization. But by the mid-1980s, Phyllis Schlafly, who's a super conservative yeah. um, Catholic Goldwater supporter, She's affiliated with it. There are a lot more evangelical Protestant women who are part of it. And so these folks really see pornography as immoral. And so then, you know, you've women testifying before the Mies Commission about husbands who watched hours and hours of pornographic content and then are violent um, Mm -hmm. and that they've suffered terrible forms of abuse from these porn-addicted boyfriends and husbands. Hmm. And the debate has sort of continued. And now I think it focuses a lot more on adolescence. Like what are young people learning from pornography and is what they learn from porn leading them to cause harm to other people? What a fascinating intersection. Like, do you think that like Phyllis Schlafly and Andrea Dworkin ever showed up at the same potluck (laughs) because they were both (laughs) against porn, but in just really different ways? 
Right. So yeah, Andrea Dworkin, of course, being one of the most famous, most outspoken of the anti-porn feminists. Yeah. So that's a great question. So Dworkin was involved in an effort along with an attorney, Catherine McKinnon, to convince municipalities to ban pornography sale within their borders. And they succeeded in a couple places, but they were all sort of vetoed or overturned. Right. They actually just wanted to blanket ban all pornography within city limits. So were Andrew Dworkin and Phyllis Schlafly ever at the same potluck? potluck. I don't... Mm-hmm. That's a great question. I just kind of like imagining it. They would have seen eye to eye on very few things, mm-hmm. except that except this. pornography was harmful. But they probably came at it for different reasons. I mean, Dworkin was herself a survivor of sexual assault. She had been a sex worker. She had had many unarguably really negative experiences of sex with men. And she theorized this as sort of, this is what this whole culture around pornography is about, that it's about men violently exploiting women. Mm -hmm. And in fact, though, in that same period, there were women who became porn creators. So there were, in the 80s, 90s and beyond, you have women opening film companies to create and distribute explicit content by women, for women. Mm -hmm. So that was a different approach. But she would have seen all of that as simply women who had internalized misogyny. Mm -hmm. And by engaging with it at all, they were just recapitulating, reinventing the same sort of exploitation that typical porn produced. Seems really hard to convince somebody of the opposite, right? If you're somebody who is involved in, like, empowering sex work or pornography, it seems like there's no way for you to convince somebody who thinks that you have internalized misogyny that that's not true. (laughs) Because they're just going to say, well, that's your internalized misogyny talking. There's just no way out (laughs) of that argument. Right, right. So the topic that you bring up about pornography and violence and does one cause the other From what I was reading, there's not a lot of at least scientific data supporting that. I think there's some thought that excessive and and like, you know, we'll talk about what excessive consumption of porn is, but that people who are already kind of uh, primed or prone to aggressive behavior, that if they're watching a lot of pornography that displays violent or aggressive behavior, that that could increase the likelihood that they will act out in relationship violence or intimate partner violence. We definitely know that there's a lot of disparities in pornography, right? So there certainly are scenes that depict violence. And the vast majority of the time, women, um, and I'm, you know, I think that that would also include not cis women are the target of the violence in those scenes. Mm -hmm. And Black women are way more likely than white women to be the targets of aggression in those scenes. And Black men are more often depicted as the aggressors than white men. So certainly, I think we need to think critically about pornography. And yes, that's a skill, right? To learn how to think critically and think about what the images are that you're being presented and how that could impact your relationships or expectations around sex in the the real world. Absolutely. I mean, there was a 2022 report out by Common Sense Media, which is this organization that sort of evaluates movies and so on for what age appropriateness they are. Anyway, the report in 2022 was saying that one way that adolescents report experiencing harm is adolescents of color feeling negative self-esteem or feeling insult or feeling marginalization from watching stereotypes of their sexuality mm-hmm. in in pornographic uh, content. So it's less about sort of incitement to violence. That that piece of it seems really hard to draw a line of causation, right? Is it mm-hmm. that violent people like to watch violent porn or is it that violent porn produces violent people? Right. But there is a lot of self-reporting of psychological harm from people from marginalized communities or people of color, seeing them, seeing people like them portrayed behaving in ways that are stereotypical and offensive. Mm-hmm. And also, I, I suspect that the the flip side is true as well, that there are ways that pornography can be really affirming. And, you know, if you're somebody who has a particular kink or if you're someone with a bigger body and you've never seen anybody with a bigger body be 
received as a sexual object or appreciated as a sexual object, like their representation in a positive way can make a big difference as well. Right. And even that Common Sense Media report did mention that for all of the debate around the sort of public health crisis of pornography in adolescence, that LGBTQ plus adolescents reported a positive response often to Mm -hmm. consumption of queer pornography because it was in a way a positive form of representation that helped them see sexual representation in a way that they hadn't from typical media consumption. Yeah, right. And it's normal to be curious about sex. And I'm sure that pornography is one way that young people are seeking out information, especially when sex ed in this country is is not great. And also probably adults who haven't had much sex education either from their families or who maybe there are folks who are leaving very religious families or communities and they haven't gotten any education or they right. haven't learned any. Of course, it's normal to be curious. And, you know, I <laughs> the other thing I learned while I was researching <laughs> for today's episode is that so Pornhub is one of the biggest like resources for people who are seeking online pornography. They have a whole sexual health section on their website with amazing like great information about like STDs and sexual dysfunction and pornography and it's amazing. So, you know, I feel like there is opportunity for good <laughs> out there even on Pornhub. I mean, I think we're going to talk more about the whole adolescent issue in our next episode. But the connection between wanting to do some sex ed and adolescent consumption, I think, is a rich topic for further for further discussion. I, you know, one of the things, though, that I find super fascinating is the way that this issue plays out in our politics. You know, I learned through the research I did for my book that it was just in 2006 that the Republican platform declared pornography a quote-unquote public health crisis that Mm. was, quote, destroying the lives of millions, end quote. So it's become a conservative talking point that pornography is de facto harmful. And, you know, in states like Utah, which has uh, Republicans controlling the legislature, they passed a unanimous resolution that pornography was, quote, a public health hazard leading to a broad spectrum of individual public health impacts and societal harm, end quote. Wow. Yeah. So, and then most recently and most disturbingly, you hear it in the sort of hateful things that people are saying about trans people, about drag, that drag itself is pornographic. And so therefore, mm-hmm. you know, ergo, it is harmful. And that being trans, uh, being around children, being in drag around children, that these are pornographic behaviors and that therefore they are harmful behaviors. Hmm. God, that's so interesting, right? Like it makes me think about, I mean, talk about nerd porn, right? This I, It just makes me think about how language can create meaning or obscure meaning, right? Like how do we define pornography and how do we define a public health hazard? And how do we decide what is pornographic and what is just sexualized, right? Right. Well, to put your mind at ease, I will say that the Supreme Court has never figured that out. So <laughs> Potter Stewart famously said, I know it when I see it. Right. Also, uh, listeners, just get this picture in your mind. For and throughout much of the 50s and 60s into the early 70s, the black-robed justices of the Supreme Court watched hours of pornographic content and sat around discussing it to determine whether it was in fact obscene. Um, And so there were many, many cases and the consensus view coming out of them was clear as mud about when is a book obscene, when is a film obscene, and all of these things. There, There were various different rules they came up with or standards at different times that is utterly without redeeming social value or that it somehow offends community standards, which then Mm. leaves open the question, but around the country, standards are very different. So could something be illicit in uh, Atlanta, Georgia, but not in San Francisco, for example? Right. Totally. So yeah, the fact that you aren't entirely sure (laughs) what is the difference between (laughs) sexual and pornographic, um, you're in good company. Well, thank goodness. Thank goodness I don't have to don a black robe and watch hours of porn (laughs) to discuss with my colleagues. 
<laughs> that would get awkward real fast. Oh, oh yeah. No, that it's not one of the more comfortable episodes <laughs> in the court's history, I think. <laughs> when the, what those conversations were like <laughs> to be a fly on the wall of those deliberations. Oh my goodness. Yeah. So the other thing that makes this really different is that the sexual content that people can consume now is so different than what mm -hmm. was available before. So even in the 1960s, you could go to a neighborhood that had sex stores. You could enter that store, go to one of the back booths and pay to watch what were called stag films, like a 10-minute usually um, film in like a little private booth. So let your imagination run wild. And that was what it meant. There were sometimes theaters in certain parts of cities where there were um, these films shown on screens. But that didn't really become more common until the 1960s. And it's the late 60s into the 70s when you have the first feature-length pornographic films. Hmm. And that was a new thing. Um, the movie industry had gotten rid of its older way. It had previously just said you can't make movies that violate what was called the Hayes Code. But around 1968, the movie industry gets rid of the Hayes Code and adopts the rating system that mm. we're more familiar with today. So, for example, when Midnight Cowboy comes out with Dustin Hoffman and John Voight, it's rated X. And it's one of the first feature films to be rated X. It has some nudity in it and sexual wow. content. It is not showing, you know, unsimulated sex. I don't even know if it's showing simulated sex. It is pretty tame by a lot of contemporary standards, but it was yeah. considered super explicit at the time. So this whole idea of, you know, going to a theater to see or by the 1980s, going to your corner video blockbusters to rent a VHS tape <laughs> that has pornography on it. There was, you know, our younger listeners will not remember it, but there used to be this little curtained section in the oh back of the neighborhood video store or if you were 18 and over, you could go in right. and select from the adult content in the back. But, you know, that is really something that's only been around for the last 50 so or so years. So is Midnight Cowboy the first pornographic film? Do we know what the first... So there's another film that comes out of Sweden the same year called I Am Curious Yellow, which is, I don't recommend... And okay. I don't recommend it, not because of the sexual content. I don't Noted. recommend it because it is like a narcotic. If you just are having trouble falling to sleep, this is the most unerotic, sexually explicit film. There's no plot. Nothing in it makes any sense. You will, you will just drift off to a beautiful night's sleep from watching this. But it was considered, it was, you know, this foreign film. And it did show a lot of nudity. It did show... The big moment that sort of made it more controversial was that a, a, an actress kisses uh, an actor's like flaccid penis in one of the scenes. There is no real intercourse that's shown of any kind. And that's the, basically around the same time as Midnight Cowboy. I have to go back and check whether Midnight Cowboy was the first American film to get an X rating. So Midnight Cowboy was not created to be a pornographic film. It was created right. to be an artistically you know, intentional film that included nudity as part of the plot of what the movie was about. That movie I do recommend. But it's in the early 1970s that there are people, historians call this like porno chic, that it became <laughs> like the cool hip thing to do to go to your local movie theater and see, for example, Behind the Green Door was a big one from around 1972. Ooh. And Deep Throat was the other big film of the time. I will neither recommend nor dissuade listeners from viewing <laughs> these films to each their own. So do you know the premise of Deep Throat? No. I mean, I, I mostly know of it from uh, all the president's men and like the white the Watergate scandal. Right. So we're two giant nerds who are mostly familiar with Deep Throat as the undercover name <laughs> of the government informant who tipped off the Washington Post reporters yep. who broke the Watergate scandal. Okay. It's very, it's very on brand for us, Rebecca. <laughs> Oh, I'm so glad I get to tell you what the premise of Deep Throat yes, is. Yes, I'm is excited like, too. This is a joyous moment for me. So the premise of Deep Throat is that this woman goes to see her physician because she's having trouble having an orgasm. Huh. And so the doctor does a very thorough exam and says, 
it turns out the reason you're not having an orgasm is that your clitoris is in the back of your throat. It's not with the rest of your genitals. So the best way for you to experience sexual liberation and be fully orgasmic is to deep throat as many men as you possibly can. Convenient. Convenient diagnosis. And that's what then happens for the whole rest of the movie. So it's a fascinating thing. And there's all kinds of further controversy about the movie and the actress saying whether she was felt pressured into doing it or, Mm. you know, enjoyed doing it or whatever. There's a whole after effect of that. But more immediately, there's two things going on with that that I think are really fascinating. The most obvious is that there's this male sexual fantasy that a woman giving oral sex to a man is having the best time of her life. Like, And he need not do anything else Mm -hmm. to uh, reciprocate pleasure other than be the recipient of uh, oral sex. But the other part of it is the movie takes as an undisputed premise that it is the clitoris that is the primary site of orgasmic function in female-bodied people. Well, that's right? pretty, that it pretty is, forward thinking, right? Right, which was, you know, Masters and Johnson had released um, their study about human sexual response in 1966, in which they basically said, nope, every time people think they're experiencing vaginal orgasm, what they are experiencing is the effect of uh, the clitoral tissue, right? Like that is the stimulated area for orgasmic function in women. So the, you know, so Deep Throat runs with that premise. And Behind the Green Door, I don't want to describe the premise of Behind the Green Door. Oh, okay. But Behind the Green Door is sort of trippy. Mm. Marilyn Chambers is the actress who does it. She'd previously been like a spokesperson for, I think, Palmolive Soap. Oh. And... Boy, that took a wicked hop yeah. from like Palmolive to yeah. the Green Door. Yes. I think this was the only adult film that she made. And then the major scene in it is a group sex scene in which she's the only woman. It is incredibly racist cool. and Great. super kinky. And I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> Boy, I'm just loving how nerdy we are. I'm also a little bit curious, like, obviously... And I'm going to use the word uh, pornography to mean a very broad swath of materials that you can consume, right? So mm-hmm. I I am sure that there was some sort of like pornographic or erotic media that you could consume before the talkies were a thing, right? And I'm very curious <laughs> about what that what that was. Was it like people in very conservative bathing costumes <laughs> or <laughs> no. people with like oh, no. long braids that, you know, covered their boobs. Oh, no, 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 no. I mean, the ancient Greeks had erotic scenes painted on the sides of urns. Um, there is sexually explicit erotic content going back millennia. I mean, in the 1800s, there were a few technological innovations that kind of spiced things up. There's this thing called the stereoscope. Right. Sort of like a box. You look, right, two images on either side. Right. And the effect, because of our eyeball-brain connection, is that they look 3D. So, you know, you could see a scene of Paris. You could see, you know, some scene of a countryside. Or, (laughs) for a nickel, you could see something else. <laughs> yeah, you could see boobs. It was boobs, but it was also um, scenes of bestiality. There was... Oh, wow. Oh, yeah. And there was, you know, exploitative child pornography in the 1800s. There was, you know, all kinds of things that you could see yeah. through a stereoscope. So photography, right? So, you know, part of this is like, you can trace, you can do a history of technology <laughs> through the history of porn. So when we start to have lithographs and the printing press, suddenly there's like, it can be duplicated really quickly. Mm. And when in the 1800s, when printing presses get more efficient and ink becomes cheaper and paper is cheaper, you can, you know, produce these dirty books and images and, you know, circulate them really easily. When the mail system becomes more reliable, right, you can distribute these things more easily around the country. And then the invention of photography, once again, kind of revolutionizes the whole thing. So photography is like 1840s-ish. And entrepreneurs figure out really quickly that this is a way that they can find new forms of erotic content. So they even make these tiny little photographic images that could be put like at the 
top of a walking stick of a cane oh. and then viewed through a special like magnifying glass or uh, fancy watch cases that when you opened them, there was an image on the inside. There were all kinds of trick cigar cases that were either showed erotic photographs on the inside or were just sort of body or salacious in what they showed. So yeah, you know, our imaginations are pretty spectacular things. And if people could think it, it's they really, could make it. It's in the indomitable human spirit. Yes, yes. You know, you can see the beating heart of American entrepreneurship. Um, it's right there in that <laughs> in, pen in all of that. that when you tilt it, yes. you know, the bathing suit slips down. Hundred percent, hundred percent. Yeah. I mean, so the moving picture presented then a whole other dimension to the kinds of explicit content that people could send around. So there were things called the kinetoscope or the Nickelodeon, uh, where these early forms of watching a moving picture. And there were some of these that showed um, sexually explicit films. Put another nickel in. <laughs> the whole song about the Nickelodeon. <laughs> but in the last 50 years, there's like the early 1970s porno chick. It's like, these movies, like Deep Throat is showing at the local movie theater and it's like the cool thing to do to say that like, oh yeah, no, we saw that. You know, I, I went to see that in the theater, right? And then that sort of fades out a little bit and then by the early 1980s, you have the invention of the home video system, the VCR, the Betamax. And so that transforms the industry again. Mm. And then in the 90s, it's the internet. And so um, each of these innovations has changed the way that people can access and distribute erotic content. Amazing. Sex sells, you know? Mm -hmm. It does. It does. So the question, like going back to our opening question, I think that yeah. is, is porn bad for my health? It's like, I think that's such an individual question, right? I think sure. the challenge with it, with framing it as a public health question is that it kind of assumes a single definition of what porn is mm -hmm. and assumes a single definition of like who it is that's being harmed. Whereas like the sort of public health campaigns around smoking, anybody who smokes or is exposed to secondhand smoke is at risk. And right. everybody knows what nicotine is, that it's addictive. And everyone knows that there are products in the tobacco that are carcinogenic. And those links are really easy to define and to trace. Here, it's, yeah, like what constitutes porn is being in drag porn, is mm -hmm. simulated sex porn, is it only hardcore unsimulated sex that constitutes porn? Is it only porn if it involves minors, right? And so on. Like, right. what is it that we're even talking about when we talk yeah. about pornography? And then are we really concerned about, you know, young Black kids seeing it and seeing really nasty stereotypes about Black people? Mm -hmm. Are we worried about young men seeing a lot of choking or violence in porn and then reenacting those behaviors with their partners? Or is that, I think, my concern is that so often in the conservative view of this, it's just porn itself is the harm. Right. There doesn't need to be a clear public health link. Just the existence of it, the consumption of it at all has already mm -hmm. caused harm because it is sex outside of marriage, because it is something that is mm -hmm. immoral. So those that sort of religious value judgment or that moral value judgment comes in pretty strong. Yeah. And, you know, the other thing that sometimes comes up when we're talking about the harms caused by pornography is, you know, sometimes people will say, well, how do I know if I have a porn addiction or if I'm addicted to porn? Ooh, um, yeah. And interestingly, you know, there's, <laughs> I feel like I'm going to sound like, again, kind of somebody who's just being annoying and semantic, but it kind of depends on you know, not only how you define pornography, but also how you define addiction. And, you know, mm -hmm. porn addiction actually does not have its own distinct, like, diagnosis. We've talked about the DSM before. There's no diagnosis in the DSM for porn addiction. There certainly are, you know, diagnoses in the DSM around sexual behaviors, you know, um, it's sometimes it's called the paraphilias section. Sure. But really the only behavioral addiction that shows up kind of in the diagnostic literature is actually gambling disorder. And that is, it's classified as a behavioral oh. addiction in the DSM. So mm -hmm. even if we're not using that word addiction, sometimes we talk about 
like problematic porn usage. And a lot of times we talk about self-perceived problematic porn usage because that's all we can go on when we're studying porn consumption is self-reporting of people who self-identify themselves as addicted to porn. And oftentimes mm -hmm. that means people use that word addicted to mean like I can't regulate my pornography consumption and or the amount of pornography I'm consuming or the way that I'm consuming pornography interferes with my everyday life, right? And it can interfere with your day for all sorts of reasons, whether that's, you know, how much time you're spending um, or how much money you're spending or if you are spending time watching pornography in places where you shouldn't, like at the workplace, or if you are kind of rushing through works and doing a slapshot job so that you can get home and watch more pornography. Those are all kind of impacts that pornography can have on your day-to-day -day life. And, you know, what's, what's interesting is, you know, when I started kind of digging into treatment of kind of problematic porn use, again, the data that we have Basically, the the overall <laughs> summative statement that I would give to the research is, meh, like, we don't really know. Because <laughs> um, the, the kind of studies that they do are not great. And the way that they kind of collect data is incredibly variable. So, like, I found one study that included three people. <laughs> it was, like, three people, and they were all oh. <laughs> heterosexual men. <laughs> You know, and that particular study was looking at like, well, can we use an antidepressant, paroxetine, which is generic Paxil, can we use that to treat problematic pornography use? And just as an aside, mm -hmm. paroxetine is my least favorite antidepressant because it causes such terrible sexual dysfunction. Like people's libido goes way, mm -hmm. way down. It's really hard for people to obtain and maintain an erection. It just is... It is not a great medication. But in this study, what they found is that initially the paroxetine did kind of like decrease people's anxiety and their porn use. But then later, like 12 to 14 weeks later, all three people had engaged in these new behaviors that were considered risky. So like extramarital sexual encounters or paying for sex. And so the question mm -hmm. is like, why? Why would it initially decrease and then increase later? You know, some people think, well, maybe part of the reason that people were consuming pornography by themselves was because they had anxiety. And then we treat the anxiety and then they're feeling more confident and able to kind of access sex in a different way. Mm -hmm. Some case reports used naltrexone. So naltrexone is a medication that we can use for treatment of other substance use disorders. So we commonly use it for alcohol use disorder because it really helps with craving and impulsivity, which oftentimes we see in kind of uh, excessive pornography consumption. But again, it's kind of like, maybe mm -hmm. it's promising, but there's not really good evidence yet. And then kind of to like get even more, <laughs> more into the weeds, like how do we define pornography? How do we define addiction? And then how do we define treatment, right? Like what is the goal of treatment? Mm -hmm. Like reducing the amount of porn that you're consuming might not even be the best goal, right? So there is this right. really interesting study that looked at shame and guilt and oh. forgiveness. And that if you increase somebody's acceptance of their use of porn or their partner's acceptance, right? So like if you can get a couple to a place where they're like, okay, you know, my partner consumes a lot of porn. That's what they're into. I'm not going to like shame or guilt. I'm going to work on my own shit. I'm going to say... I am coming to, to a place of acceptance. Or if somebody says, I'm going to forgive myself for doing this, that that mm -hmm. might be just as important a goal since that shame and guilt piece is so often this part of a self-fulfilling prophecy where like somebody is feeling a certain way and they are using pornography as an escape, right? As like a coping mechanism. I don't right. want to deal with the stuff that's making me uncomfortable. Mm. So then I consume pornography, but then I feel more despair and, <laughs> and distress because I have all this judgment about consuming porn. So then they have more despair, right? right. It's just this like self-fulfilling prophecy. And 
there are some people who think like if yeah. we can just focus on that piece, on the like guilt and shame and forgiveness piece, that that could actually be incredibly helpful. Right. Oh, that's fascinating. Right. And also, you know, depending on who you talk to about problematic porn consumption, you know, a lot of times people will say similar to kind of other substance use disorders, you know, if you have been consuming something for six months or more, if it's like the central focus of your life, you have tried to make changes, but you haven't been able to, you're not able to stop despite negative consequences and it's causing distress, then, you know, that could be a compulsive behavior. But interestingly, if you're only having distress about your porn consumption, and this I think comes from the American Psychological Society, that if the distress only comes from moral judgment and disapproval, that's actually not enough to meet the distress requirement. Like there needs to be some other reason than, you know, religious or cultural shame about <laughs> consuming pornography. That's fascinating. That's fascinating. The only other piece I feel like we should, of course, mention, um, I think it's gone sort of unsaid in our conversation so far, but we should probably be explicit about, is that there are obvious concerns about um, non-consensual mm -hmm. film, right? Obviously, there's concern about people who do not consent to be part of these films who are mm -hmm. um, trafficked or exploited. And it does seem that there are people who are in very vulnerable um, financial positions or who are in the midst of some sort of migration or immigration who are taken advantage of or sort of coerced into being part of things that they don't want to be part of. Mm -hmm. And then in that case, there is the direct harm to them, sure. you know, regardless of whatever harm people think ensues in the person who watches that, there is uh, obvious and, and considerable harm to the person who's being coerced into being in those films. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, the other things that I might add, some of the questions that people have about pornography. Um, and again, a lot of the data focuses on men, 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 or like so many studies about cis men. But oftentimes people have questions about like erectile dysfunction. Like, am I unable to obtain an erection mm -hmm. because I'm watching too much porn? Am I having delayed ejaculation? Is it affecting my sexual desire or sexual satisfaction? And there's not a lot of data about delayed ejaculation. Maybe there is some association between erectile dysfunction and problematic pornography use, but it's really hard to know. Maybe mm. there's a negative effect on sexual desire if you're using pornography long term. There is some data to support that men who use pornography more often tend to report less satisfaction with their sex life. Right. I mean, that could be hmm. due to a, a huge number of factors, you know, and that doesn't even talk about dynamics within somebody's relationship. And then in terms of sexual response during masturbation, some people think that maybe if you're watching a lot of porn, masturbating a lot, that it, it could make it more difficult to have sexual response during masturbation because you're in this like near continual state of kind of like, relative post-ejaculatory refractory time, right? So a lot of people who are assigned male at birth, once you ejaculate, there's a period of time where you're kind of like refractory or unresponsive to more stimulation. And it's just like, you need some downtime before you can do it again. And so <laughs> if you are <laughs> masturbating a ton, maybe you're like in that downtime most of the time when you're not masturbating. So we also think that, oh. I don't know if I really buy into it yet, but some people are showing changes in the brain matter, that there are certain parts of the brain that become less prominent and other parts of the brain that become more prominent on neuroimaging. But that's true for people who do other things a lot, right? So you can be watching a lot of porn or you can be like practicing your violin a lot, a lot, a lot. And that's going to just, it's going to change the structure of your brain, right? Just because of the way that our brains hmm. work. Oh, you know how I would like to end this, Rebecca? I am curious about when you... I feel like everybody has in their mind the, like, stereotypical porn music, like, beat. Do you... what When you think about, like, the sound of pornography, and I don't mean, like, the human thing. Fascinating. Mine is... 
There we go. There you go. That's it. There we go. Um, Well, on that note, (laughs) listeners, stay tuned next month. We're going to have another episode. We're going to have sort of part two of this discussion. And we want to thank everybody who's been a supporter of the podcast. A whole bunch of people gave donations to us last year. We are a nonprofit through the Foundation for Delaware County. So all of your donations to us are fully tax deductible. And they help us pay people like Mick Finnegan and Nora Carlson, Mm -hmm. who behind the scenes actually bring this podcast to your ears and make sure that we get the word out. So thank you so much for being listeners. If you have a minute and you haven't yet, please rate and review us so that other people find us. You can head over to our website, www.reallyweirdquestion.com and you can find ways to donate there. And you can also find our merch, which Nora designs and is therefore fantastic. She's amazing. So till next time. You've been listening to This is Probably a Really Weird Question, which is created, hosted, and produced by Rebecca Davis and Ronnie Hyone. You can learn more about us, read our show notes, and find links to resources on our website, www.reallyweirdquestion.com. Follow us on Instagram at reallyweirdquestionpod. Send us your really weird, not really, questions by emailing us at reallyweirdquestion at gmail.com. Nora Carlson is our website guru and social manager. Mick Finnegan is our sound engineer. Mark Wurzelbacher composed and recorded our incredible theme music. We are grateful for the financial support of the Phils Wickler Charitable and Memorial Foundation Trust. We additionally thank the Foundation for Delaware County. Please rate us and review us on Apple Podcasts to help other people find us in their feed. Our website is also where you can find links to our fabulous merch, which helps support the show. Thank you for listening and keep on asking those questions.